less stress, more time, more money. Welcome to the Cash Flow Contractor interview. Martin, it's been like three weeks since we've sat down and recorded together. Uh, I know you've been really slack. I had to do one without you and that was really, really hard. Yeah, uh, I'm sure you handled it great. Uh, I'll have to go listen to it. You, you haven't heard it yet. <laughs> I haven't heard it yet. No. Ethan, but... Ethan heard it and I had to make a few corrections and edits and stuff, which I probably uh, am not supposed to admit, but <laughs> but but we did. That happens. It happens. Uh, you canceled one too, right? You celebrated your 43rd anniversary with your, your bride. I did. We How went about... up to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, amazing. Really beautiful place. It is. Um, well, we it's been a while since we've had a guest together. I don't remember who the last one was, but we've recorded a lot of deep dives. But excited to have this guest on today. Have you ever heard of a contractor that is employing someone as a um, W-9 contractor? Or 1099? Or t- 1099, sorry. Uh, contractor, but they should probably be an employee instead. No, I've, I've never heard of that. <laughs> no, I, I wrote a, I think it came out in the last couple of weeks, but when you know, oh no, it was called Surprise. Yeah. And in that, uh, in that podcast, I talked about all these people in different businesses who had been ambushed because mm-hmm. of things they didn't know or assumptions that they made. Yeah. And that's what really kind of prompted this uh, getting our guest on today was to bring up some of these specifics and let people at least be aware of them. Because a yeah. lot of people think, oh, I'll just 1099. We haven't even talked about that yet, but I'll, I'll just do 1099 instead of W-2. And then I won't have to make payroll deposits and I won't have mm-hmm. to pay those payroll taxes or I'll just pay them a salary. Just a whole lot of things that if uh, nobody ever looks, maybe you get mm-hmm. away with it. But if they do look, you might be in for a really big surprise. A big surprise, big surprise. Well, let's go ahead and welcome Tom Robertson to the podcast. Tom, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for agreeing to be on. Um, sorry if Martin and I caused you any headaches during this conversation, but uh, we're going to probably ask some stupid questions and learn a lot from it. So excited to chat with you today. And uh, you're in, you're located in Tulsa. And how long have you been doing employment law? Um, Let's see. It is 40. Gosh, we just passed my law school graduation for 43 years now. Wow. uh, Yeah, it just seems like a lifetime. And I'm kind of like Martin. (laughs) I just had my 43rd wedding anniversary. Hey, congrats. The year's lining up there. Yeah, we're, we're pretty parallel. That was our 43rd this last weekend. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, in 43 years, you've probably gathered quite a bit of stories uh, of mistakes inside of the workplace with employers uh, and having to cover for them and all that kind of stuff, I'm sure. Slight missteps, yes. That's, yeah. uh, uh, they do tend to visit the uh, council once the, once the letter from our friends in the government comes or uh, <laughs> sometimes you know, even get in ahead of things, which is really the preferred way to do it. But we can talk about that today, too. Yeah. Well, before we get into kind of some of the things that contractors need to be aware of, 
uh, some of those missteps, if you will. How did you get started in in employment law? Well, um, I was in uh, law school in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, got to a point where I could take some electives. And I just uh, thought that the employment uh, area was something of interest and something kind of new. I'll date myself here, you know, but uh, Title VII, the main anti-discrimination law, was just getting underway at that point. And so they started a new class on employment discrimination in law school. And I thought, well, that's that's a good thing to know. I think I'll do that. And so I did that and the interest grew. And then I thought that um, some good experience right after law school would be with uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which mm-hmm. is the main uh, enforcement agency for the nation's anti-discrimination laws. And there, of course, weren't as many then as there are now. But uh, so I joined the EEOC as an attorney in the Atlanta Regional Litigation Center and gained some experience in law enforcement that way. And then um, grew up in Tulsa and had the opportunity to came, come back. So we, we seized it. Been representing employers in uh, uh, mainly employment matters uh, since, uh, gosh, coming back to Tulsa in 1979. Wow. And Tom, what's your firm there in, in Tulsa? Barrow and Grimm? It's Barrow and Grimm, yes, sir. Um, we're, we're in downtown Tulsa here and um, have been, uh, gosh, uh, coming up on the 45th year of uh, existence for the law firm. And so it's been a good established presence. And we do uh, uh, just about all types of business law, including employment law here. Okay, so that's just part of it. Not everybody's employment law. Oh, correct, sir. Yes, I, I leave right. the labor and employment uh, section. And uh, we also do general business, um, have a close working relationship with associated builders and contractors uh, that we do a lot of work for them. And one of my members, excuse me, one of my partners is a member of the board of directors there. So uh, have done a lot of construction related employment law over the years and some, Mm -hmm. some union matters for construction firms as well. What are some of the typical things that you help maybe contractors with, um, maybe in regards to employment and even beyond that, but what are some of the things that you're helping them uh, go through in whether it's in litigation or uh, outside of that? Yes, um, Khalil, I've, I have a variety of things pending, but uh, for instance, uh, for a construction company now, um, they've uh, happily experienced some growth. They need an employee handbook, which really just sets out all basic policies, ways of doing things, gives information about the company. And so I'm going to be drafting an employee handbook for them. They also want a uh, confidentiality and non-disclosure agreement. That is, employees uh, very often will get access to confidential information of the company in order to do their business. That's the sort of thing, of course, you don't want leaving when the employee leaves your employment. So we can have a confidentiality agreement, also provide for non-solicitation of our clients. That is, if I go from uh, company ABC to company XYZ, if I have agreed with ABC that I won't solicit customers, that's enforceable in Oklahoma. So um, Mm -hmm. drafting an agreement for that, We've got some litigation over just those issues of someone leaving to start his own business and uh, is doing that. 
I have uh, a variety. That's an interesting. Of, that's an, I want to stop there real quick. So that's an interesting thing yeah. that I'm sure a lot of contractors are worried about. They've got a guy that's on their staff uh, who maybe is a foreman or you know leads a team, and they feel like he's really competent, but they're also worried in the back of their mind that guy's going to go out and start his own business, and I'm going to be SOL. So what? Uh, what are some things I'm sure that happens often. What are some things that you can do to combat that as an employer? Uh, Well, this is one of the areas where I say the uh, really smart money can be spent by a contractor on preventive measures, as Mm. opposed to waiting till the disaster hits and then trying to recover. Right. So what if we have an agreement with a a construction company, Um, you include it in your new hire package. And just as I described with that one I'm doing now, it talks about confidential information. And let's bear in mind like a, a, a salesperson, for example. Okay. They'll have access to all of our customer base because we want them soliciting business. They will not only have it typically uh, at their office on the, the maybe the office PC, but may well have all that on their personal phone. They may have that downloaded to an iPad at their home. Okay. Right. So that... This confidential information, customer lists, pricing lists, uh, costs and specifications, Mm -hmm. that information is extremely important to a business success. And our employees may have three or four versions of that. Hmm. So it really helps if you have an agreement before they leave that says, look, I recognize, I, the employee, recognize this is all confidential information. I only have it because I'm working. I'm going to use it only for my job. Now, when I leave, I'm going to return all this confidential information. The electronic versions, I will also destroy. And I'll give access to the company, to my phone, my iPad, uh, a home PC, if they want to review and verify that I have wiped all the confidential information. Hmm. Now, can they download it to a thumb drive? Well, yes, but... The point is, you really need to, you, the employer, really need to think ahead and how am I going to face that disaster of my best foreman, you know, a guy I really like who's been with me for for 12 years, Yeah, really hung the moon. Yeah, he's a good hand, and he goes out and starts his own place, and his natural inclination is to do business with the folks who know that he produces a good quality product. So. You, the employer, got to take some steps. Absolutely. So, in, a, in an ideal world, you have those employment employee agreements in advance, and yes, you are um, providing those whenever you hire the person, and they're signing them right away. And then you have those on file, so that you're not having to deal with it whenever that person leaves, should they start their own company. That is the preferred process. And and let's I, I would if you're okay with it, I'd love to get a little bit transparent because I know there's a lot of guys that don't have that in place right now. And so if yes. they were going to get that in place, what would be the difference in pricing? And you can be broad with the range, but let's just say for a company that does maybe two, three million in revenue, uh, they're trying to get some employee employee agreements in place. How much are they gonna save by doing that up front? Versus doing that on the back end, someone leaves and they try to go the litigation route to get those things back from that employee. 
Yes, and there are some variables that will go into it, but on your typical oh, uh, employee secrets or discrimination suit, uh, an employer can easily spend between seventy, eighty thousand dollars just to prove that they're right, that they haven't done anything wrong, and that they wow. their information is subject to being uh, protected. So mm-hmm. that goes right to the bottom line. Yeah, clearly, so, you know, I. Uh, I've always um, recognized that legal fees, uh, I'm here to help and, and I love my clients, but they don't really don't want to see me. It's a drain. It's a straight drain on profit. Okay. So I'd much rather you spend $2,500 on the front end. Let's get a good confidentiality agreement that you can use with every employee. And then if we have to go to court, Maybe we can make it short and sweet. Maybe we can get the relief we want right mm-hmm. away. And we don't have to go through that seventy, eighty, hundred thousand dollar process of fighting with an employee. And so what's a good range for like if you're gonna hey I, okay, I recognize I need to do that on the front end. I'm gonna go ahead mm-hmm. and get some employee agreements. What should I be budgeting roughly to get those agreements in place with an attorney? Um I would say, let's just take a confidentiality agreement, okay? Okay. And that's typically going to be really fairly simple, three or four page agreement. Okay. Um, uh, most attorneys on the management side will charge by the hour. So you're probably looking at a $2,500 to uh, $5,000 okay. all told, draft it, review it, get the input and come up with the final mm-hmm. document. Yeah. If we're dealing with a handbook, that's typically a more involved document. It's going to set out, gosh, uh, you know, every policy that we have right. or that we think should be addressed and my, may well run 25, 30 pages. So that will be more expensive depending on what the employer wants to put in there, what right. it feels it needs to address. But yeah. um, bear in mind, one thing about the handbooks is we usually say in there, this is not a contract. Okay, Mm. this is an advisory of all of our policies, procedures. It's a good information source. So you can have a confidentiality policy in there. What if you go to court, though, and sue somebody on that? And the first thing they bring up is, well, wait a minute, Mr. Contractor, you say right here, this isn't a contract. Mm. So it's an advisory, but it's really not binding, is it? Well, we can argue about that, but that's why I do like a separate confidentiality agreement on the things that are really critical to contractors in protecting information and protecting their clients from solicitation. So another question that comes up, I'm sure for you is, you know, contractors aren't just worried about someone taking and uh, leaving with their pricing or, um, you know, other confidentiality stuff. But they're also worried about non-compete stuff. Um, you know, this employee, they train them for 12 years and now they go and they work in the same industry and take clients and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, I, and I know that we have listeners that aren't just in Oklahoma, but I know in Oklahoma, or at least I've heard, maybe you can clear this up for me, that we have maybe weird laws around non-competes um, where you can't keep somebody from an opportunity to work or something like that. So I'd love it if you would kind of clear that up for me, one, but then two, how do we handle that, uh, that aspect of things? Oklahoma does have uh, specific protections for 
employees who leave or, or perhaps okay. just to say fostering competition. The okay. Oklahoma law says that uh, trying to prevent someone from exercising a lawful trade or occupation is in fact a restraint of trade, a phrase you'll sometimes hear, you know, in monopolies or uh, right. situations like that. And so the general rule in Oklahoma is we cannot prevent an employee from going out and going into the same business. There's a there's an exception for um, a situation where uh, you have an ownership interest in the company. You sell mm. it back to uh, your partner or whomever you're in it with, and you're selling goodwill. That is the good name, reputation, ongoing value of the company. You have an exception there where you can agree to a reasonable non-compete. But just the general rule for our contractors who may be listening is you can't prevent that foreman or top salesman from going out, joining a competitor, or starting his or her own business. Can you do a non-solicit where maybe they don't take away your customers? Yes, you can. Um, and that was one of the documents I had mentioned earlier is okay. it's awfully good to have that in the new employee hire packet and get it straight gotcha. from the beginning. We're happy to have you. You're going to have access to some sensitive information. So you've got to leave that and you cannot solicit an established customer. So we cannot just say anybody who's ever thought of doing business with Tom Robertson Construction. No. But the established customers of Robertson Construction, we can prevent them from soliciting work from them. Gotcha. Very interesting. Well, thanks for clearing that up for me. Um, Martin, I know you had a question that you were wanting to ask, but uh, I think you're you're struggling again with your mute. So I'll just keep going. Um, no worries. So uh, for contractors that are out there, I, I think that there's also some concern around 1099 employees. Um, like, you know, they, they hire someone, I, I know I mentioned this at the very beginning, but they, they hire somebody on as a 1099 contractor, but really they could probably getting, be getting into some issues. Tell us a little bit about that. Like what do you usually see with construction companies? Well, well first, what is a 1099 contractor and a W2? That's uh, that's a detailed question, Martin, <laughs> but I'll do my well, best. Uh, in and, general, yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, the distinction is between, you know, 1099 is miscellaneous non-wage income, all right? Your business hires a uh, plumber to do a plumbing company to do some really serious renovation on your facility, and it winds up being, you know, five six thousand $6,000 you may have to give them a 1099 showing the non-wage income, the money that you paid to that uh, plumbing company. Okay. Now, that is different, of course, from a W-2 employee where they come on and they're performing work for us and we know that they're an employee and that subjects them, of course, to all of that pesky employer having to pay in on uh, Social Security and, and Medicare and the uh, federal unemployment tax, it has some consequences that I can understand a contractor wants to avoid. But you cannot just designate someone as a, quote, independent contractor, close quote, 
Uh, you can't just call them that because it's easier. You have to recognize what is the true relationship between the parties. And there's been a lot of litigation and guidance on that. It's interesting that we're, we're touching on this. I think it's probably beneficial maybe to the listeners, because if you'll go to the Department of Labor, U.S. Department of Labor's website, they have a fact sheet on an employment relationship under the Fair Labor Standards Act, the wage and hour law. Mm-hmm. In there, they say typical problems. The number one problem they list, one of the most common problems in the construction industry, where contractors hire so-called independent contractors who in reality <laughs> should be considered employees because they don't meet the test for independence as stated above. <laughs> so I'm sorry, contractors, but you are way up there on the DOL's list of suspicious relationships. The yeah. And you can tell me where I'm getting too deep in the weeds, but there is a, a Department of Labor test that lists seven factors. Very interesting is the first one, the first of those factors says the extent to which the services rendered are an integral part of the principal's business. So if I'm running an electrical contracting business to hire or to associate with a journeyman electrician and try to put that person as an independent contractor, that's going to be trouble a hundred times out of a hundred. That's an integral part of my business. And I just can't say, well, I'm paying him on a, uh, a commission basis or uh, some type of bonus incentive to find business, whatever. Uh, right. It's, it's just so then you go on to factors like how much investment do they have in facilities and equipment? What's our control of the principal over the other party? The contractor's opportunities for profit and loss. And by that, I mean the the employee or the guy you're bringing on. If if they're just working for you and they're working on a, whether it's a per job or per hour basis, there's very little opportunity for true profit or loss. If you're using them 45, 50 hours a week, they're probably not working for anybody else. That's what <laughs> looks like the usual employment relationship. So they don't have right. That. So, and, and the IRS has their own tests. The Oklahoma Employment Security Commission has their own tests. So there are some different factors, but I believe what they're trying to focus down on is look at the relationship. Is it the typical relationship between an employer and employee? Do they depend on their paycheck for their economic survival? Yeah. That's not to say that a separate business can't have a single customer. You can have that same electrical business. And let's say that you're fortunate enough to have a a, a single customer, a a Google or a big hospital. You can do 100% of your business for them. You're likely still an independent contractor. Why? You have trucks. You have all kinds of equipment, uh, supplies that you'll use in performing work for them. You've got employees that you bring on and train. So that's a true independent contractor relationship, even though there may be a very close economic dependence. Um, Mm. You're free to work for other people. You're free to expand your business, do what you want. So uh, certainly these factors have to be influenced by the you know, the particular situation uh, factors of each test, of each situation. But uh, the Department of Labor is going to be looking at 
what's the true nature of the relationship? How close are these parties? Yeah. Tom, what are uh, some of the consequences just off the top of your head if you get that wrong? Because they can be pretty severe, right? They can, Martin. If we take a situation where the U.S. Department of Labor comes in, uh, they usually come in because of an employee complaint. Uh, the employee will say, well, I haven't been getting paid overtime. And we say, well, you're an independent contractor. You're not entitled to overtime. The department will look at that. And of course, overtime is 150% of the regular rate. So how long have you had this guy? The typical statute of limitations can go back three years. You may be paying a 50% penalty on all the wages paid over the past three years. And understand when the Department of Labor comes in, they send you a first thing you get is a letter from them and it requests information. It's a pretty standard form letter. It has eight to 10 factors. They ask for the wage history for every employee. So if you have a problem with say an independent contractor situation, and it's not just one employee, it's how you use the majority of the help in your firm. They're going to target every one of those situations and you could be looking at, again, a, a penalty, so to speak, of 50% of their normal pay for all overtime worked. So it can be a very significant problem. OESC, it's typically this is, uh, uh, more of a, a This is a little bit of a subtlety, but it just pops into my head. If those penalties are so f severe that you decide to declare bankruptcy, I mean, we going all the way to the end. Can you discharge those liabilities or is it like payroll tax that you owe? I don't care if you go out of business, you still owe them. Uh, they are subject to being discharged in bankruptcy. Now, wage claims okay. typically have a very high priority in bankruptcy from my limited understanding of bankruptcy. So they'll go to the top of the list of things to be paid, but they are dischargeable. Do you have any stories of like a time that you helped a client uh, go through a similar process like this and what it was like for them specifically? Oh, gosh. Yes, I've done a number of wage and hour audits. And like I say, you, you go through the thing and it typically comes from one employee complaining about something. So you mm. go in, you, you get the letter. Uh, uh, one of the worst ones I had was a... Um, oil field uh, services uh, company supported right. drilling in the field. Um, so they got it. Uh, I believe the operation was in Minnesota. So we went up and dealt with Department of Labor in Minnesota, and they had um, some issues with one of our classifications there. All right, we were able to get that resolved at not a, not a uh, tremendously large price. But having tumbled to the fact that that's how we treat our people, and this was a contractor that was in several states, I then got notice, or the employer then got notice at its uh, off corporate offices of, we're going to look company-wide at all of these, not just Minnesota, <laughs> but your Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, Colorado, and New Mexico employees as well. Wow. So... Uh, at least the, the only good thing about that, it was limited to one employment classification where we had a disagreement. We felt legitimately it was it was an exempt position. But in any event, so 
like I say, when you get into these things with the U.S. Department of Labor, uh, they look at the total employment situation. They're going to look at everybody affected, and their remedy is going to be everyone who they feel is miscategorized. Now, you don't have to settle with them, but if you don't, you run the possibility of litigation, and there you're getting into, we talked about the expense of litigation earlier, so you could wind up uh, paying me uh, a lot of attorney's fees, and then the court saying, and by the way, you owe these employees uh, this 50% right. penalty for overtime. So it's a... Uh, it's, a, it's an expensive proposition. So if you get one of these letters, probably the best course of action is to talk to someone like yourself, an attorney first, and then figure out what the best thing to do from there is. Well, of course, that's that's always the best uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> answer to any problem. But no, seriously, is um, the wage and hour laws are very um, specific. They're detailed. Department of Labor has been doing this for like 80 years now. So right. they're very experienced and uh, uh, that's kind of their own world. So it is very helpful to have an attorney who knows here are the regulations. Here's what we need to look at. Here's what Department yeah. of Labor is typically wanting. Uh, here are the danger spots. So, yes, uh, you can go it alone, but um, it helps to have an experienced advisor there. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really interesting. So what are some of the other uh, issues that, you know, outside of, you know, losing an employee or not classifying your uh, employees slash independent contractors correctly, what are some of the is other issues that you run into with businesses around employment? Well, obviously we have um, uh, the discrimination claims have been going on, like I said, since I basically started practice and have gotten... Um, the laws have gotten more expansive since, um, hmm. well, over the last 40 years. So that now almost every category is protected. Uh, I say category, those those characteristics that aren't subject to change, your age, race, sex, religion, national origin. Uh, I think everybody's probably aware that the U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled that um, uh, gender identity and sexual preference is a subset of sex discrimination. So you can't wow. discriminate based on that if you are subject to the employment laws. Um, so those are those are out there and they simply are part of our business that we've got to recognize. By that, we've got to have good policies which say that we're going to certainly respect and promote equal employment opportunities. That's the law of the nation. It's the law of the state of Oklahoma. That's going to happen. It has to and should, I say, uh, translate into uh, training for your supervisors. Uh, too often we take a, a top hand who is really a, a good one, knows the job well, makes them a foreman. Do we give them any training as to what are some of the laws that they have to apply? What do they need to be aware of? What are proper coaching and uh, employee relations techniques, things like that? I'm a big proponent of training because just because you're an extremely skilled worker doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good foreman. We've got to help our folks. Yeah, absolutely. So basically what you're saying is if I have a foreman who I don't necessarily give some training to, specifically around discrimination that could fall back on me as the employer if they do it if they have sexual discrimination or whatever it is yes, yes. 
but if I did provide that training, would that protect me as the employer? It can help. I should say that, remember, if we have a true foreman, uh, we're not talking about a, a lead man or something, but, but true foreman, sure. that's an agent of the company. If he or right. she says, okay, you're fired, you're off the job, that's the action of the company, right? They're fired. So that mm. if they commit uh, uh, an act of discrimination, if they're constantly uh, uh, making uh, comments about one of our female employees and the clothes she's wearing to work and uh, what she's doing outside of work, well, that can yeah. be creating a hostile work environment and, and that's on behalf of the company. So yes, wow. there are defenses, particularly where we have good policies and have done training. But the main thing is that foreman won't say that. If you've trained the foreman onto the, uh, the particularities of all the laws that are out there in the employment field, at least given them some background, some help on the do's and don'ts, then yes, you can number one, avoid that situation or number two, have a good defense to that situation. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. It's not even something I've Yeah. The, uh, some of these discrimination issues are similar to safety issues. The point isn't just to build a legal defense. It's that you don't discriminate and you don't have accidents. There you go. Right. I mean, people sometimes lose, lose track of that. Yeah. Really interesting. So I, I want to make a point here to most contractors because the reason why, I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's a lot of contractors out there that are just intentionally don't want to be, good employers. They don't want to employ people. Uh, you know, it, it usually comes down to a lack of awareness or a lack of income money. And so I think it's so important to just emphasize if you don't know something, go find someone that can help you like an attorney, right? Like Tom Robertson, but also you have to, when you sit there and you continue to bid, bid low and, uh, not priced correctly and, you know, shoot yourself in the foot on these jobs, you're, you're putting yourself not just in a position of, you know, less cash flow and not as much revenue, uh, not as much net profit at the end of the day. You're also preventing yourself from the ability to pay for things like confidentiality agreements and putting policies in place in an employee handbook and, um, you know, uh, training for your, your team members and your employees. So it all comes back full circle. You have to be bringing in that money and you have to be charging the right amount and, you know, increasing your margins, those kinds of things. You know, and a good Tom, there's a, well, there was, um, and uh, Khalil asked a good question, I think, or makes a good point, but there's a, there's something related similar to the 1099 issue and that's exempt and non-exempt employees ah, yeah. uh a lot of uh people i've worked with haven't ever even heard those words don't know how, how they apply but they'll take somebody who works variable hours and does things and, oh i'm just going to put him on salary can you talk a little bit about what exempt and non-exempt is and, and how they would affect somebody in a contracting business sure very important issue martin um start from the proposition of this this fair labor standards act i mentioned that's the wage and hour law it establishes minimum wage and overtime right so everybody is entitled to minimum wage and overtime 150 percent of your regular rate 
unless you are exempt from those requirements. That's where we get exempt and non-exempt. The so-called white-collar exemptions, which are the majority of the problems in this area, deal with a executive, an administrative, and then a professional exemption. And professional is probably not that big for, for our listening audience. They're architects, engineers, attorneys, dentists, things like that. So you're professional. But an executive is where we get into a lot of the issues. First of all, they must be paid a salary. That's an absolute non-negotiable, indispensable part. They're salaried at the Department of Labor level, which is not that much. Um, but their primary duty has to be managing an enterprise or a department or subdivision. And by that, they mean they have to regularly and customarily supervise and direct the work of at least two full-time or full-time equivalents, four part-times for that matter, if they work uh, 50%. So within that supervision, they have to have the authority to hire and fire or their recommendations are given particular weight. So the salary is an absolute requirement, but that's not enough. If you put someone on salary, uh, you can have a non-exempt salary. For example, you could have your receptionist that you pay a salary. Uh, that person is clearly not exempt from overtime, but you're just saying this is what you're gonna get every week and as long as you meet the minimum wage and as long as you pay overtime, if she works 41 or he works 41, 45 hours, they're a salary non-exempt. But usually when we're dealing with a salary, we're dealing with an exempt person. Exempt from overtime is what we're shooting for. So there's your managers, your supervisors. A question quickly. Uh, so you've got a secretary whom you're paying a salary. You don't have to change the salary, but the salary has to be enough to have covered minimum wage plus overtime. Is that right? You have to have the salary. Or salary and you have to add. There you go. Pay Yes, the salary is just for her uh, straight time during that week. Uh, you divide the total salary by the number of hours worked. And you've paid her for the, for the base rate, the 100%. And now you have to pay 50% of that for the overtime. So yeah, Martin, for a salary non-exempt, you still pay overtime. Uh, with the uh, wow. salaried exempt, we pay them a fixed amount every week. And there are some variations on that, but the salary is defined as a, a fixed amount they receive, which is not subject to increase or de decrease based on the number of hours worked or the amount they produce. So. That's the great thing. Okay, you work 45 hours, you still get the same salary. Now, conversely, if they work five hours in that week and we have some equipment issues and we can't uh, get the job site going and they're just not there, they get that same salary for the five hours a week. So it works both mm -hmm. ways. But usually, of course, we're going to be paying, uh, uh, avoiding the overtime. That's the benefit of it. Now, one other I wanted to mention there that, that, that could well, very well be of applicability to some of our listeners is the administrative 
and where we have executive, mm -hmm. administrative, and professional. Well, an administrative person is an office or non-manual person who does the general business of the employer or even the employer's clients. Uh, they have to have uh, discretion and independent judgment in what they do. But take your office manager. If you're large enough to have someone who's an office manager who runs the administrative staff, who coordinates with the production side, uh, this person really just runs your business, may do payables, may do receivables as well. That person may well be exempt from overtime because they're doing important things for you. And they are also, they're not out in the field producing. They're helping you run the business. So office managers, uh, uh, specific tax people. Uh, if you're running a business where you're helping with the client's um, uh, nature of business, they can be exempt as well. So I think the critical distinction there is this is not the electrician or the framer or anyone out in the field. This is the person who is behind the scenes who helps you get the job done. They can be exempt from overtime as well. I know that's a long answer to a short question, but it's kind of complex. It's a complicated subject, and I think most people are not aware of it. But the takeaway yeah. is you can't just say, I'm going to pay you a salary. There are some tests. And again, it's fraught with uh, danger if the Labor Commission comes in and determines that you were paying somebody a salary who should have been paid overtime. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I can't yeah. tell you how many times in happens in a contractor situation where they think, gosh, if I just put them on salary, I'm okay, because that's going to cover all the hours. And it's just not that simple. Yeah. So there's, there's another, you know, I'm sure that COVID has impacted so many different businesses in many different ways, but I'm sure it has impacted employment in some regards, as far as maybe laying people off, putting people on furlough, um, even just not having work and, uh, you know, paying them less wages. I mean, how did, how did you guys see impacts for your clients, uh, during COVID? What are some of the issues you guys run in, ran into? Well, it was, um, excellent question. It was, uh, interesting in a complex situation. If you remember back when we, uh, started this in gosh, what March of uh, 2020, um, we had uh, state shutdowns uh, in Oklahoma and in a number of states. Um, you also had legislation that we had to uh, make some payments to folks who, for example, lost child care or uh, through health issues were unable to work. So the Family and Medical Leave Act uh, got some expansion. Employers had to be aware of exactly what the latest legislation was there to be able to do that. And then, uh, unfortunately, we had a number of reductions in forces or furloughs, and uh, that's always tough. Uh, I think that's one of the hardest things an employer faces is where you have to uh, end the employment or at least halt the employment of somebody who's not done anything wrong, who's been a good employee for you, and you're just forced through business circumstances to say, I can't use you anymore. But that does raise an interesting thing is, remember, there may not be a, a, a huge legal distinction, but usually we talk furlough in terms of someone keeps their employment status with us. 
and we can't use them for a specified period of time till the, uh, let's say, till the state's um, closure order gets lifted and, and things go back to business as usual. You can furlough someone for that period, maybe keep them on if you're paying some of the benefits. Uh, so at a greatly mm -hmm. reduced price, you keep a employee. They don't have to go out and leave you and find somebody else because they know they're going to be called back to work. It's just a question of time. That's what we usually refer to as a furlough. Now, a reduction in force, which um, many of our listeners have employed you know, at the end of a job, for example. They may have to do a reduction right. in force where they, in effect, terminate the employment of all their folks, except for perhaps the foreman and, and estimators and the office staff then. So that's a different thing than a furlough. That's a um, ending the relationship. Now, certainly you're free to start it back up again when the next job starts, but once you've terminated someone, there's usually no obligation to bring them back. And that's a, that can be a critical factor as well. Yeah. You know, this brings up another thought that I've uh, had just thinking around employee, you know, and reduction and stuff like that. And we talked about non-compete earlier, but uh, oftentimes you may be on a job site with another, uh, you know, subcontractor and they may poach one of your, uh, your people from you. How can you protect yourself against that? Is that something you can protect yourself against? Is there this situation where you can, uh, you know, have a contract with the other subcontractors on the job or even, is, is like a finder's fee applicable in that situation? Uh, what are the options there? Yes, you can do some protection on that. Now, it's going to be mainly from contractor to contractor or, or subcontractor. Because as we talked about earlier, employees generally have the right to go out and, and be in competition. Right. Papers, right. The restraint of trade. But if you've ever used a temporary services company, there's usually something right. in your contract that says, Hey, if you hire this person to be your employee, as opposed to working as a temporary through us, you have to pay X amount of dollars so yeah. that we could do that with uh, some of our other subs or other contractors on site to the extent we have uh, contracting relationships with them. Um, and it depends on economic power and everything else that you might have, but from a from a, an owner to a contractor or from a general contractor to a sub, you can make that agreement of if, in fact, somebody uh, from my workforce leaves and joins your organization within six months of the completion of the contract, you agree to pay me whatever the, the appropriate compensation, whatever you feel like you can negotiate and, and have as a, as a reasonable factor in your contract. So it's possible to get some protection there. Tom, I, before we move too far away from it, back to unemployment, uh, whether it's a reduction in force or, or you terminate somebody for cause, this is a question that comes up all the time with me, with, with clients. I, somebody's claimed unemployment against me. I've terminated them. Should I fight it? And what do I need to, to have to be in a, well, first of all, the question is, can I fire somebody? My, my information is that we're in Oklahoma, at least we're in at, at will state and you can just fire somebody. 
but it's not quite that easy. I presume you're subject to discrimination, other things. But when somebody goes and files a claim in unemployment, I realize it's an insurance uh, claim, but people ask me, should I fight it? And one of the questions, one of the factors that weighs into that decision is what are the consequences of not fighting it? Your rate's going to go up, but does the rate apply to, and let's say your rate goes up and then you hire 25 more people than you had last year. Does it cost you disproportionately? I mean, can you explain a little bit if you're familiar with it, what the effect of firing somebody and losing a, uh, or laying somebody off and losing a, uh, an unemployment case is, I mean, financially. Sure. Sure. Um, when we have a, an employee that we uh, fire, uh, you're exactly right that the law of Oklahoma is at will. That's pretty firmly established. Certainly we have uh, no discrimination and you can't retaliate against somebody for filing a complaint with the government, things like that. But we're an at will state. You can fire for any reason or no reason at all, as long as it's not illegal. Now, when we get into unemployment, um, the state has a public policy of saying, Generally, if you're unemployed, we want to help you with unemployment. That gets you on to your, your, your next job or your next phase in life. But you are subject to disqualification for various factors. If you don't look for work, for example, uh, or if you're perhaps physically unable to work, you may not be eligible for a period of time there. But the biggest one, I think, Martin, that you may have been referencing is misconduct connected with the work. Let's draw a distinction between a, uh, a person that you hire who really tries their hardest. Um, they're trying, but they just don't have the skill level or the aptitude to do the job that you're looking for. Okay. We fire them. That's not misconduct. Okay. That's just either a lack of skills or uh, lack of aptitude, whatever it may take to be a success at your business. So they'll get unemployment. Misconduct connected with the work is where they have disregarded an obligation towards you, toward you, the employer, where they have actually done something wrong and not just produced scrap, mismeasuring or something, but where they have uh, more consciously failed to do what an employee is obligated to do. Um, that can be obviously a situation like employee theft, uh, failing a drug and alcohol test where you have a policy in effect that says you're subject to testing and don't come to work impaired. They fail that, they're not going to get it. Um, usually fighting with another employee, insubordination. It can go to the point on attendance and tardies. Uh, they can say, oh, car trouble, or my uh, spouse was sick, or I had to take the kids. There's many good reasons to be late. But at some point, they're getting to the point where they're putting personal interest above the employer's interests, and they've got a pattern of absences and tardiness, and that can be a disqualification. So I do urge employers to fight those where they feel like there is a uh, good evidence of misconduct. That's what we got to have, misconduct connected with the work. Because the shorthand way of doing this is 
you look at the employer's experience rating, you get to a, a percentage factor of how many benefits have been paid out as a percentage of payroll. Then you look at the state's experience factor, uh, how they've been doing on unemployment. Uh, lately, of course, it's going to be higher because we've had so many more claims, but that goes into it. And then you get finally to a, a rating, a percentage rating. 1.6% uh, of your payroll is what you pay. And that's subject to going up the more that you have to pay because the employer experience is one of those things that can affect it. Um, you're not always able to, to, to have a good reason, a disqualifying reason for termination. But where you have one, it does make economic sense to do it. And it's hard, hard to quantify, but um, I don't know. A couple of years ago, I did a, a just a projection uh, of a million-dollar uh, payroll for an employer. And um, they've got uh, three cases of uh, misconduct that they're able to um, prove that uh, they shouldn't get unemployment. Uh, something like that, uh, at the time I did it, was uh, three cases might save you $11,000 in unemployment compensation taxes. So yeah, I'd rather have that money in my pocket than paying it to the state of Oklahoma. So if you have, again, and I think this goes to something that we've, we've mentioned before, what are your policies? Do you have a handbook? Have you told them what's expected? Uh, attendance, uh, no insubordination, uh, your drug and alcohol policy, do you have things like that? If you have... Um, a well-run business and administered business, you've done some training of folks and tried to, and it can just be your Monday morning toolbox meetings where you're starting the job every week and maybe you cover one issue related to employment, whether that's, uh, hey, there's no working off the clock here. We're going to pay you for all your hours. Uh, guys and gals, let's be cognizant of sex discrimination. Let me tell you some of the some of the ways that comes up and, and the things that we're going to avoid here at, at this company. You take 15 minutes every week, and then when you get a claim, and they say, well, have you ever done anything? You bet. We cover something like this every week and try to train our people. So that can then lead to you've got a good basis to say this person knew it violated the rules. They did it anyway. They should not get unemployed. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I mean, it seems like a lot, you know, it, it's as a business owner, there's such a headache of what do I focus on right now? <laughs> and to, to, to go through all this stuff and think like, I know there's people shaking their boots right now, like, Oh my gosh, that this could happen to me tomorrow and I wouldn't be prepared. But I think like anything, it's, it's about making a process for it. And it's about making it a part of your culture so mm -hmm. that people just live it out. And it's also about the small changes over time. You're not going to have it perfect there. Mm -hmm. I would say, you, wouldn't you agree that most companies don't have it perfect? Oh, none that I ever work with. <laughs> you can't even define perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but aren't even aware of most of these things that you're talking about. I feel like most companies aren't. And I, I think that for the most part, it's just about finding one thing that you can do this month and implementing it and continuing that habit and then getting something the next month and just those small changes over time. 
It is, and, and this, uh, uh, I just go ahead. Just, well, it it just brings brings me to a thought that um, one of the things we say is that of the four areas of business, which our listeners know what they are, you will spend more time outside of doing what you do. Maybe not ours, but more of your attention as an owner administrator is going to be in marketing and sales and leadership and administrative issues. And you just, the other thing, it is one thing at a time, 100%, Khalil, but you have to have somebody who can tell you tell you what the one things are. And this is an ambush question, Tom, but do you guys have a checklist? Well, we have done a lot of training in the past, so we certainly have a, a checklist of things that we recommend to employers if they want to train supervision or, or even some of their employees. Um, we also, of course, have checklists and things that we do where uh, the employee handbook, as we've mentioned, uh, a lot of policies right. that you want to include in there. And so there are things certainly over the years, and, and I've tried to keep lists of things that clients have done or the clients have wanted or things that have worked out well. So I can pass these on when I do it the second, third or 10th time uh, down the road. Uh, but there are things you can do. And I think your point's well taken, gentlemen, of yes, it's a process. Uh, employment law is complex and has a lot of details. So is environmental law. So is uh, safety there are a lot of things that you cover, but the complexity doesn't mean you don't address it, but you can do it one at a time. Um, yeah. What's our topic of the month? What's our toolbox yeah. meeting going to be? What's our subject right. today? If we do safety once a month, we do some other aspect of employment um, once a month and gradually you get to where, yeah, folks know what they need to know. We've given them the education that they need and our supervisors as well. We've helped them. So you've got a good functioning company because most people, most employees are trying to do the right thing. They're generally trying to, to help you and do their jobs in a good way, but you've got to help them. And if it's an information source, they're probably not going to get it if you don't give it to them. They may learn carpentry someplace else. They may be an apprentice of some specific trade, but on things like these, it's up to the employer to do this. And you don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can get, Martin, as you mentioned, maybe a, a checklist of things from your uh, from your business advisor or your attorney of cover these 10 subjects. You know, give a little education as to these. Uh, it, it's very doable. Right. right. It's so overwhelming when you look at it as... Uh just a topic. And then we just mention all these subtopics like we have today. It's less overwhelming when you say, okay, I need to address sex discrimination in the workplace and I'll bring somebody in to do it. And we have mm -hmm. that. Everybody gets their card and we'll do it again next year. It's on the calendar. So there you go. Yeah, yeah yes. we have I'm, I'm... talked about so many things here today. I mean, 1099s versus W2s, uh, uh, non-competes and non-solicits, uh, training on EEOC issues, on discrimination issues, uh, the key elements in a uh, in a HR handbook, which maybe we'll get you on again one time, and that'll be the topic, what elements need to be addressed 
in an employee handbook at sure. at, a, at a minimum. Uh, unemployment, fighting unemployment. There's so many th- reduction in force. So many things we could keep going on. What questions can you ask in an interview? And what had you better or better not say when you're terminating somebody and not the confidentiality agreements that you get signed? And anyway, there's so much. It's just just been wonderful. But I hope there's been some clarity to people listening, at least on some specific topics. Yeah. And and if if there isn't clarity on that topic, the clarity should be there. Hey, there's stuff I need to know about that have consequences. And I'm going to find an advisor and ask. I'm not just going to do it. That's, yeah. that's the that's the best money you can spend is uh, the avoidance of problems or being proactive in your business. And I know that I, I just I have a very narrow specialty of employment law. And I know that business owners face a tremendous variety of things uh, that challenge them and that will affect their business. But um, as you mentioned, Martin, People issues are typically one of the biggest time consumers of management. You spend more time on people issues than just about anything else. So it helps if you can spend a little time uh, to do it correctly on the front end rather than just to deal with the problems on the back end. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the the main focus is, you know, preventative measures. Take your vitamins, not your uh, your uh, medical treatments afterwards. You know, I have to reiterate what something that Khalil said, which I think was a brilliant point. If you guys are out there lowballing bids and just barely getting by, all of this stuff is just a burden and it looks insurmountable. How could I afford to pay Tom? I don't even know what he costs, but I know he costs something. If you're going to play in this game, bid right play right, play by the rules, and succeed by the rules. Those are the guys that are around over the long haul, not the guy who's hand-to-mouthing it and and, uh, kicking people off the job. Don't give a damn what the government says. You ain't working here anymore. Well, that might have just been the last sentence you spoke as a business. (laughs) Could be. Could well be. Yeah. So that's a brilliant point that, that Khalil brought up. This all goes together Yeah. when you decide to do it right. Absolutely. Well, Tom, thank you so much for for being on the cash flow contractor. Um, I will probably try to have you back at some point, but um, how can people connect with you? Uh, the Barrow Grimm website. Uh, gosh, everybody does things uh, electronically, of course, these days. But um, if you type in Barrow and Grimm on Google, you'll get a link, of course, to our website. And uh, it'll tell you a little bit about the uh, law firm and has phone numbers and also has some uh, employee, um, some attorney bios, so you can see if uh, you need particular help on a contract or some construction litigation or something, uh, we've got attorneys who can do that. So yeah, thank okay. you, Khalil, but it, it, it's right there. And that's probably the easiest way to do it is just uh, excellent. Barrow and Graham, and that will give you the answer. Well, we'll put a link to that down in the show notes for listeners. And Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the knowledge, uh, your expertise. And I know people will, uh, at least their eyes will be opened at at, at a minimum, but maybe they'll get some direction from this episode as well. So thanks a ton. You're certainly welcome. Uh, Enjoyed speaking with you guys and hope this has been some benefit to our listeners. Yeah. I know it has. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. 